0: Hello, and welcome back to the Cuse Conversations podcast. My name is John Boccasino, the communications specialist in Syracuse University's Office of Alumni Engagement. I earned my bachelor's degree in broadcast journalism from the SI Newhouse School of Public Communications in 2003, and later received my executive master's degree in public administration from the Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs in 2020. You can find our podcast on all of your major podcasting platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. You can also find our podcast at alumni.syr.edu slash Conversations and anchor.fm slash Conversations. It's
1: a storytelling game. Baseball is all about stories. Uh, if you overdo statistics, it becomes too much like work for the audience. I mean, analytics are fine. They tell you a lot, but people don't want to hear in great detail about spin rates and all that kind of thing. They'd much rather have a story. A story tells the picture. It's entertainment. You're trying to entertain as well as inform. And uh, if you get too heavily into statistics for the listener, it's like an extension of their workday. This should be relaxation.
0: Our guest today is Joe Castiglione, the longtime radio play-by-play voice of the Boston Red Sox. He is the longest tenured member of the broadcasting booth for the Boston Red Sox since 1983. He has been the radio voice. So if you're in the Northeast and you're a Red Sox fan, you've heard Joe's voice. And there's something magical about baseball being called on the radio. And Joe has had the pleasure of doing this longer than any other radio voice in the proud history of the Boston Red Sox. He earned his degree, a master's degree from Newhouse in 1970. He also worked on the WAER radio staff at Syracuse, and uh, he's our guest today on the podcast. Joe, I really appreciate you making some time. How are you holding up these days?
1: Thank you, John. Very good. We'll have uh, baseball the way it was last year, at least to start the season. That means we will not be traveling, and uh, we'll do the home games live and the visiting games, the away games,
0: off a TV monitor, at least for the first half of the year. None of us knew this time last year that sports was going to take a hiatus. You know, I think it was, we've never seen anything in our lifetime like, like COVID. What kind of challenges did that present to you? First of all, not even knowing what's going to happen with baseball, but when it resumed, you know, how did you handle that challenge of trying to call games during this most unusual of years? Well, we were just happy to
1: have baseball at all. You know, it started in late July, played 60 games. So, uh, you know, happy to get paid, too. <laughs> so that was a big plus. And, uh, you know, the challenge is no fans, but they mixed in crowd noise. And it really worked. I mean, it's certainly not authentic, but it worked to have some low crowd noise, uh, both for the games that were unfolding in front of us when the team was home and for the road games doing off the TV monitor. The hardest part, uh, probably, and the most uh, disappointing part was No contact with anybody. I mean, I get to know players over the years. Uh, We had no contact with uh, any player or manager other than Zoom. And uh, that was the way it was. I mean, we we went to the fifth floor at Fenway Park. Nobody was allowed up there. We weren't allowed on the field or the clubhouse. And that's still the case today. So it may change the way sports is covered, too.
0: Did you notice any difference in maybe how you were broadcasting a game. I know that the crowd plays such an integral part in both the, the action itself, the ambiance of being at a game. How did that affect you as a broadcaster, not having a live crowd? Well, it didn't affect the
1: actual play by play of what was happening. It was the aftermath, you know, where you recap a play and the crowd is still screaming because a Red Sox player hit a three run homer. You didn't have that. You did have a low crowd noise. So that was certainly an adjustment. Uh, You're at the mercy of the TV director, too, because the TV director calls the shots. That was really something that uh, we had no control over. And if uh, he doesn't show you or the director doesn't show you where the ball is, whether it's fair or foul, home run or whatever, um, you have to wait and wait for the definitive word. Uh, Boundary calls were especially tough, whether it was a home run or whether it was a foul ball, because they take a tight shot of the foul pole and they don't pull back to see whether very quickly to see whether the batter runner was circling the bases or going back on a foul ball, they hit for more. So um, those are some of the things that, uh, that I think were the challenges. Uh, but it worked pretty well. And a lot of people told us they didn't know that we weren't live at those road games. And uh, It could be the wave of the future as much as, uh, you know, we we love being on the scene and having personal contact. It could be the wave of the future because, you know, the bean counters save a lot of money.
0: Well, it's a testament, Joe, though, to the skill that you bring that a lot of your audience wouldn't be able to tell, you know, if you were there. I mean, it's one thing if there was a, a glaring gap and you're almost waiting for the result to happen. The fact that you could seamlessly pull off these calls, and, and I'm sure there were situations where you just had to rely on your instincts. You've done this for so long, it has to be part instinctual to a lot of your broadcast calls.
1: Oh, sure. Yes. Yeah. I and mean, that's where experience really helps. I mean, if I were uh, a young broadcaster just starting out, that would be extremely difficult. But, you know, you can follow patterns. And uh, it was not that uh, tough an adjustment. It just, you know, wasn't as much fun, really. <laughs>
0: The fact that the 2021 season is going to be starting uh, come April 1st, I know you've been calling games down in Fort Myers, Florida for the Red Sox spring training games. And those have been in person, right? You you were down there actually calling those games.
1: Yes, we are in person, including road games. We only, we play in a pod. We play with the Atlanta Braves nine games. They're in Northport about an hour from here. The Minnesota twins were five miles away in Fort Myers. Uh, eight games with them, Tampa Bay, about 45 minutes away in Port Charlotte. Eight games with them, and there are a couple games with Baltimore and Sarasota that about an hour and 15 minutes in Pittsburgh and Bradenton, which is about an hour and 20 minutes. So uh, that's pretty much uh, the way they
0: did it to keep teams in pods close to home. What is going to be the plan for uh, this regular season with your travel, with calling games at Fenway? What is your outlook looking like?
1: Well, right now, we are not going to travel, at least the first half of the season. Uh, Whether we travel in the second half depends, I think, on what's happening with COVID and uh, the uh, new strains and vaccinations and that type of thing. So it's really too early to call, but I think our TV people uh, are already under the understanding that they're not going to travel at all. So I would think it'd be doubtful that we do too, unless, of course, we make postseason. And last year, the only ones that, uh, that travel for postseason were the Tampa Bay Rays. The Dodger mm-hmm. broadcasters did their radio games throughout the World Series and throughout the playoffs from their homes. Charlie Steiner was in his home.
0: Rick Muddy was in his home. I know Fenway Park is going to have, what, I think 12% capacity uh, for right. their games, which is a welcome sign to at least have yeah. the trickle back of getting you know closer to normalcy.
1: Yeah, it'll be about 4,500
0: and. uh here it's spring training it's 20% it's about 1900. I want to go back in time a little bit sure. and, uh, and and talk about baseball in general and your your love for for radio broadcasting um, there's something special uh, baseball is such a sensory sport when you're there in person you've got the smell of the fresh cut grass and you've got the the crack of the bat. It's an audible sport. There's so many of those senses that really, Play up to it. And radio, you're painting a picture for the people that are listening to the games. When did you yourself become so interested and so involved in radio broadcasting? Well, I think
1: uh, when I realized it wasn't good enough to be a player, which I knew (laughs) at about age 10, most of us are frustrated players. So I think that was a big factor. Um, You know, as a kid growing up in New Haven, Connecticut, I was a Yankee fan. (laughs) We all learned (laughs) from our mistakes. <laughs> but, uh, I was rooting for the Yankees, and Mel Allen was my hero. And actually, I probably watched more games on TV than, than radio because the Yankees did 140 to 150 games. Then, you know, when I went out to uh, work in Youngstown, Ohio, covered the Pirates and the Indians in those days, those teams did only about 40 TV games. So that was not a full time job. So that's why I really wanted to do radio. My first uh, baseball jobs were television. Hmm. For the Indians games in 1979 on the CBS affiliate store of broadcasting. And then um, my next job was the uh, Milwaukee Brewers on uh, pay TV. We had a little box on top of the TV and had to subscribe. Basically, a movie channel was called Select TV. And then I did the first cable games in Cleveland in 1982 before I came to the Red Sox. And in those days, the Red Sox did about 100 games on TV, maybe 110. But I wanted to do radio because it was every game and it was a full-time job.
0: What is it about the art of baseball play-by-play that you think is a perfect match for, for your talents compared to, you mentioned you did television work in Cleveland and Youngstown, but you've done this for so long. Why exactly do you think that you know, you're so well-suited for, for doing the baseball play-by-play?
1: Well, it's the pace of the game. Uh, baseball is a radio game because there's a lot of non action. People can listen with half an ear, tune out, tune back in when the announcer raises his voice, or you know something exciting is happening. You don't need total concentration. So I think that's a big factor uh, as why it's a radio game. And uh, TV doesn't do baseball justice. It's a wide area, a very wide area in a small ball. Basketball is easy, big ball, small area. And same with football. Um, but It's not a great, like hockey, it's not a great television game. So that's a big factor, I think. And, uh, you know, it's, I've heard it said, Er Ernie Harwell told me this many years ago, the Hall of Fame broadcaster from the Tigers. Uh, Television is an analyst game and a director's game in baseball, and radio
0: uh, is an announcer's game. Nothing happens till the announcer says it does people rely on you so much to be that chief storyteller when they're listening to those, those games and they trust you that what you're saying is accurately painting the picture. How do you go about building that trust with your audience? Well, you have to be consistent and trust is the
1: biggest word, John. I think you captured that very well. You have to, the audience believe in what you say. I mean, you can't uh, chill for the club. Uh, You have to be accurate in your descriptions. There's too many checks and balances. So, I think you have to be honest and uh, earn the trust of the listener. And it's just by describing what you see as it happens and not covering up for mistakes of players or, you know, management's uh, poor decisions. It's really something that you really have to be honest about.
0: A lot of broadcasters nowadays, the younger generation, it seems they want to use stats and they want to cram stats down. A listener when they're doing their broadcast. And and I'm sure that there's a time and a place for stats, but your style seems to be more down-home storytelling, weaving in anecdotes in between the, the lulls and action. Where did you learn the art of storytelling and how do you try to weave in and fill those silent moments where there's not action?
1: Well, I think by studying the greats like Mel Allen and uh, Ernie Harwell that it's a storytelling game baseball is all about stories uh if you overdo statistics it becomes too much like work for the audience i mean analytics you're fine they tell you a lot but people don't want to hear uh about in great detail about spin rates and all that kind of thing they'd much <laughs> rather have a story A story tells the picture it's entertainment you're trying to entertain as well as inform and uh if you get too heavily into statistics for the listener, it's like an extension of their work day. This should be relaxation.
0: I know you've, uh, you've mentioned Ernie Harwell a, a couple of times. And of course we have still pleased to have Vince Scully. I know he retired, but he, a weird fact he's on Twitter and he's sharing his love of baseball on social media. What are some lessons that Ernie, the legendary Ernie Harwell uh, imparted upon you and Vince Scully and all those other great baseball voices? Well, to
1: be honest, to describe what you see as it's happening and, uh, to make sure that uh, you, you call the play in great detail so that the fans have a good idea of what's going on and to use a story. A story tells a thousand words. I mean, it's, if your story relates to what you're try, the point you're trying to make, uh, it's well, well worth it and it's entertainment too, which I think we, we have to
0: realize that we're trying to entertain as well as inform our audience to keep them with us. So how did you go, Joe, from being someone who grew up, you know, loving listening to Mel Allen, being a Yankee fan, was it a tough adjustment to go to be in the radio voice of the Red Sox?
1: No, not at all, because uh, I was a full-time job and I'm from New England, <laughs> from New Haven. And, uh, you know, I had been familiar, I'd already done Cleveland and Milwaukee Brewer games. So, you know, it was a signature franchise, Boston Red Sox. So it was not difficult at all. You go where the opportunity happens to be. And uh, I had a lot of people who helped me along the way. Uh, one of my great mentors is Bill O'Donnell, a longtime voice of Syracuse sports, on WSYR radio and also on Channel 3. He was the anchor. He did Syracuse games, national championship team in 1959 in football, did their basketball. I met him. At Colgate, when I was an undergrad, we did the same triple overtime game with the Colgate the Raiders, Red Raiders then, now just Raiders, almost knocking off Dave Bing and Jim Bayheim and went to triple overtime. So Bill was a great mentor. I met him that night in our little Huntington gym, which was, I don't know, built around the turn of the 20th century, probably seated about uh, four or 500 people. And I was doing the game on the college station. And there were about maybe 50 people in the stands expecting a blowout. But as word got out that Colgate was right in the game and threatening to pull an upset, uh, people started coming because everybody was in walking distance and we had a full house. And that's how Ahmed Belodano would be a mentor and later went on to do the Baltimore Orioles, TV and radio and NBC football. For many years
0: after his time in Syracuse, uh, where he was really the voice of SU Sports. You've been behind the mic for some of the highest highs and the lowest lows uh, of being a Red Sox fan. Uh, what has it been like for you to have that to be the standard bearer? It's, it's 38 years, you're the longest tenured broadcaster that they've had in, in their proud history. What does that mean to you to get to carry that?
1: Well, it's an honor, John, it's a responsibility. Again, to keep your credibility and to have your audience trust you. So uh, I think I've been very privileged to to uh, be in that role. And again, it's consistency and trust are the two biggest keys.
0: Look, the Red Sox had a tormented history, you know, from <laughs> facing Bob Gibson in the World Series at impossible summer in 67, 86, Bill Buckner, the ball goes through his legs, and the, the Mets storm back to win the World Series. But in 2004, you know, you're you're one year removed from the pain of losing in the ALCS. You get down three nothing to the Yankees, and they come storming back, win the greatest comeback in baseball history. The only team, the first team to come back from a three nothing deficit. What was that season like? What was can you can you summarize just you know when you realized it was a special team and what it was like calling games during that magical October run?
1: Well, I can't say I predicted it would happen. Down three games to none. And losing game three, 19-8 to the Yankees at Fenway Park. It was an interesting season in that uh, there was a lot of animosity between the two teams. Uh, Late July, there was a game at Fenway where the management was going to rain it out. It was a national TV game at four o'clock Saturday afternoon. And they were going to rain it out uh, because the field was uh, pretty well soaked. But the players petitioned the owners to play the game. And uh, Yankees led most of the game. They did play. Um, and late in the game, A-Rod uh, and Jason Veritek got into it. Veritek gave him the leather sandwich when A-Rod was uh, complaining about being hit by a pitch. And then Red Sox still trailing, won the game on a walk-off home run by Bill Miller off Mariano Rivera. The greatest closer of all time. He owned Rivera, something like four fifty-five. Miller did in his career against uh, against uh, Mariano Rivera. So there were signs that could happen. Another thing that we noted: the Red Sox did not have a starter miss a start all year because of injury. The starting five started every game they were scheduled to start, and that doesn't happen very often. So that's some pretty good pitching. And you know, you thought you had a chance. You had a veteran team. Most of whom were not homegrown, and uh, they had traded Nomar Garcia para. Yeah, you had some hope, but down three to none, Uh, there wasn't a lot of hope.
0: (laughs) And it was—it almost seemed like um, anticlimactic that it goes to a four-game sweep of the of the Rockies to win home to bring home the World Series title. Sox fans would have taken no drama, just get it over with, get the championship. But I want to take you back to that World Series because you were the first Red Sox radio broadcaster to ever get to proclaim the Boston Red Sox are the world champion since radio didn't broadcast World Series games until 1921, three years after Boston's last World Series victory. How much thought went into your call of the final out? And did you allow yourself to even think about that moment, given the cursed history of the Red Sox? Oh, I
1: did, John. I thought about it for years. How would I call the last out of the world championship, the first one since 1918? And I went back and forth in my mind and finally came to the conclusion, I can't script it. I don't know how it's going to end. So I'll just react to what happens. I've known broadcasters that try to script it and they might mess it up. Uh, Something might throw a little monkey wrench into it and uh, it just doesn't work that way. Um, and I was just hoping for something definitive. I didn't want a diving catch. Did he catch it or didn't he catch it? Check swing. We have to wait for the first base umpire on the appeal. I wanted a definitive play. And we got a simple ground ball to the pitcher. Ground ball stopped by Folk. He underhands the first and the Red Sox are the world champions for the first time in 86 years. That was, uh, I think, uh,
0: the best way it could have ever happened. What was that moment like when you see something that, again, generations waited for and never got a chance to see their beloved Sox to win the title?
1: Well, they say an athlete sometimes gets in a zone. I thought I was in a zone, too. Um, I was in our booth. My partner, Jerry Truppiano, going down to the clubhouse for a celebration because you know we were uh, up three games to none and Red Sox fans still don't count on that for sure, but we had a pretty good idea. So, you know, I was pretty much alone and I just was so focused on what happened. And, uh, you know, I wanted to let the crowd play and can you believe it was the call, which I think fans identified with because there have been so many tough moments over the years.
0: Yeah. The Red Sox fans really, really put their time in, you know, between the curse of the Bambino and winning that world series in 2004. It's just it's, I, I, just, I wanted to ask you that question because it hit me. I was watching uh, a replay of the baseball documentary by Ken Burns, and Bob Costas is talking about that moment, too, back in 86, when there was no radio around in 1918 to call. So you got a chance to make history, and that's just so special that a Syracuse alum got to be behind the mic for that.
1: Right place at the right time. <laughs> Syracuse <laughs> alums have been around a lot of uh, great uh, moments in sports, but uh, that was particularly satisfying and uh, then to have it three more times three with four world championships in 15 years
0: well speaking of that Syracuse connection let's go a little bit down memory lane with the orange you mentioned uh doing your undergraduate work at Colgate and actually I do want to go back to that game that triple overtime Jim Beheim, our Hall of Fame coach has a rebound shot at the buzzer to force that third overtime and yeah. and Dave Bing and, and Beheim pull out the win what If you can think back to it, what were your thoughts on Beheim and Bing and, and what? But that, that Syracuse basketball tradition? What kind of struck you about that?
1: Well, I still think Dave Bing's the best player in Syracuse history. They might get an argument on that. And certainly we had nobody like that at Colgate. And we had been blown out by 40 points two or three weeks before at the Manly Fieldhouse. So we weren't expecting a competitive game by any means. But there were so many different aspects of that game. Our coach was Bob Duffy, 24 years old. He had just been – was a Colgate grad, six, class of 62, I think, the last time Colgate ever beat Syracuse in basketball. A very young guy, and uh, he had been just released by the Detroit Pistons. And Colgate coach quit the first week of the season, so he, had, he was available, and uh, they gave him the job. And his brother, Richie Duffy, was the point guard for Syracuse. Um, he was a man that, uh, that ha- handled the ball. And they had, of course, uh, besides Bing, Jim Beheim, they had uh, Sam Penseel who got a rebound, I think, in the first overtime to send it to the second overtime. And then Beheim got the missed shot. You can still see it hitting the back of the rim, and he gets the rebound and ties the game. And then in the third overtime, our best player, George Dalzell, fouled out. And I think Syracuse won by 10, but it was an exhilarating game. And uh, I did a story uh, for the uh, 50th anniversary of that game for uh, the Syracuse newspaper. And, uh, you know, it's still the most unforgettable basketball game I've ever done. Um, we still haven't beaten Syracuse, <laughs> but, uh, but it, it was great. And then, uh, you know, we played Syracuse every, usually twice in a season. And I think, I know 1962 was the last win, and one of my real great friends, a dear friend, the late Hank Greenwald, did the game, uh, Syracuse grad. He was, I believe, um, he was class of 57. He was in Jim Browns class, but he was doing Syracuse sports, and he did the game.
0: Yeah, Dave, Dave Bing, listen, you're not going to get an argument from me over who was the greatest Syracuse basketball player. Dave Bing is so highly regarded and respected. I wish I wish the current generation could appreciate just how much of a talent he was.
1: What a great guy. I mean, he went on to become mayor of Detroit as a civic duty, not uh, because uh, of any ego or any financial reasons. Uh, uh, very much a, a model citizen, uh, no question about. Syracuse coaches the Freddie Lewis, who always had a orange towel the terrible towels which was actually before the Pittsburgh Steelers had the terrible towels uh in the 70s but uh, he had the, this big orange towel that he'd wave around and uh I think Syracuse had been pretty bad in the early 60s and then this with Dave Bing put them on the map but uh, it, it was a tremendous game that we relive every year it really was my introduction to sports broadcasting I mean it, Doing working on the student station, there was nobody to instruct. There was nobody to uh, critique because nobody really wanted to do that. I got to do the games as a freshman fo- fo- football and basketball because nobody else. The seniors didn't want to do it. I guess they wanted to be heard. And uh, for me, it was a tremendous opportunity. I was very blessed to have that opportunity at Colgate. We never did baseball games because we didn't have battery powered equipment, and there was no electrical outlet by the baseball field, if you can believe that. But, you know, then I went on to a grad school. After I graduated uh, from Colgate, I wanted to, I knew my career. I didn't really think of TV. I thought of radio, and I really wanted a career there. And uh, I actually worked in Connecticut for six months uh, doing high school sports in Meriden and news in New Haven. And I had done disc jockey work in Ansonia But I went to grad school because I wasn't making any money and I didn't see a bright future. So I thought maybe that would help me. And so in uh, January of uh, 69, I went to SU, to the sequence, they called it then, uh, the graduate program, 11 months. Uh, I came in the middle of it. Usually it went from September through August. I went January or February 1st and through January. And it worked out well because I got to work at Channel 3 in Syracuse, my first television experience. Uh, I started as a booth announcer. We did station IDs, basically. Hmm. This is Channel 3, WSYR-TV, Syracuse, NBC in Syracuse. Uh, and there were tags to do with commercials, you know, on Sunday morning with the movies. Uh, it was a great opportunity because I could do everything. Uh, after I had a little more experience I would sign on the station, especially in vacation time in the summer, on television, I would be anchoring the Today Show news cut-ins at 7:25 and 825 uh, from the channel 3 Studios. And then I would go to class up on the hill, and then I'd come back, they'd be in the booth, uh, doing station IDs or whatever they had me do. I also uh, I filled in for everybody. I was a DJ. Uh, Booth announcer, did news, did sports. Joel Marinas was uh, my mentor. I did Syracuse basketball with Joel, longtime voice of Orange Sports and the Syracuse Chiefs as well. And uh, we did uh, the basketball games in 69-70 on WSYR radio until I left to go to Youngstown, Ohio. That turned out to be a good move, too, because I got to anchor 6 and 11 every night to do radio play by play of Youngstown State Sports, with Ron Jaworski as our quarterback, even though we were 0-9, and basketball, uh, high school basketball. And I met
0: my wife there. What what more could you ask for? (laughs) When you you look back on it, uh, what's the biggest way you can say Syracuse University impacted your broadcasting style and your broadcasting career?
1: Well, I think uh, it was the opportunity to do it. To get experience to be on the air and uh, to learn by doing, I think that was the biggest thing. Uh, we had a news course. I remember that was very good. That taught me a lot about TV news. And if you're doing sports, you're still, you know, you're still a newsman. So I think that was very helpful. I don't know if I was a student first or a, an announcer first. Probably in my mind, I was an announcer first. Uh, but you know, I did get the master's degree, and it really helped me in later years because it was the biggest factor in me getting a teaching job. I taught 29 years, self-designed broadcast course at Northeastern University in Boston, 12 years at Franklin Pierce University in Ringe, New Hampshire, and one year at uh, Emerson College in Boston. So uh, having that sheepskin really helped me get those jobs. You know, academia works. And they want to (laughs) see the degrees. But it it was great. And I think that helped me because I was able to give back to a lot of youngsters, uh, a lot of students along the way, And some of my Northeastern students uh, went on to uh, big things. Don Ursula was a TV announcer for many years. Now the TV voice of the San Diego Padres. Uh, We've had others who have uh, gone places in hockey, uh, including the NHL. And Michael Haynes was a young man in my first class who went on to do Colorado Avalanche, I guess it is, the Avalanche. Uh, And there were others too in minor league hockey and in baseball. So, I think uh, that Syracuse experience with academia helped me get that teaching job. And, you know, quite frankly, I did it for extra income, although it wasn't very much. But it it was great because in later years, I was
0: giving back. And
1: I did it, as I say, at Northeastern for 29 years.
0: I don't have to tell you this, but sports broadcasting is such a competitive industry. And there's so many students that want to follow in your footsteps What's the biggest piece of advice you would give to someone who's listening to our podcast who wants to get into sports broadcasting?
1: Learn how to prepare. I mean, most of your work is done before they say play ball, but you have to be ready to capitalize on the moment. You have to be on top of it. Be prepared is, I think, uh, the number one aspect you have to have. You have to be credible. You have to be honest. And you have to be descriptive. I think, you know, it does take ability. Not everybody can do it. But I think being prepared makes everything so much easier. People ask me in baseball, how do you prepare? How many hours do you prepare? Well, I think in baseball, you prepare a lifetime. Now, it's
0: different in other sports because the action carries it. In baseball, the action doesn't carry it.
1: So having that background, I think, is critical.
0: I'm always impressed when it comes to sports broadcasters, how quickly you guys can recall and we're talking vividly 1965 Colgate, Syracuse, and I feel like it's just as fresh in your mind now as it was all those years ago. Do you ever find yourself forgetting other things and still having great recall for sports? Like has a part of your memory suffered?
1: Yeah. It's compartmentalized. Don't ask me, it's in my checking account. (laughs) I'm pretty good with things like birthdays and dates, but uh, you know, there are a lot of things I don't recall, but I do about baseball because, and sports, because that's where my interest lies, and my wife doesn't quite understand that. Sometimes, how how can you remember what happened in nineteen sixty five, and you can't remember what I told you last night? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, Joe, it's really been a privilege and a pleasure having your uh, story here on the Q's Conversations podcast. I want to thank you for your time. Wish you nothing but the best. Uh, again, Joe has been the legendary voice since nineteen eighty three for the Boston Red Sox. Best of luck, Joe, and uh, and keep in touch. Thank you very much, John. Go orange, except when you play Colgate. Thanks for checking out the latest installment of the Cuse Conversations podcast. My name is John Boccasino signing off for the Cuse Conversations podcast.